You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Yes, I've been away. I've missed this segment and it's so good to have to be back to be able to chat to the Naked Scientist. That's Dr. Chris Smith and he is the Chair of Science at Cambridge University. Hello, Chris. Do you mean to tell me you didn't tune in just to listen last week? No. <laughs> Class, if I'm I'll let you off. Yes, I'll thank let you, you off. Please slip you off. Um, but, uh, I'm good. Are you good? I'm very good. Happy to be back. Well, it's nice to talk again. Yes. What are we catching you up to at the moment? What are you up to? Well, it's a hospital day for me, and um, and so I'm taking my lunch break talking to you. My, this is this is a sign of of my admiration and love for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm devoting my lunch hour to to this conversation. But no, I mean we're we're looking at a very important day today because it's a big step forward on our roadmap to easing our way out of lockdown. This is the time when from today people can get together in each other's houses uh, in groups of six or two households uh, together under under one roof. And this hasn't happened for months. So you can imagine that people are very eager to see each other. Um, there's there's practical advice circulating on how to safely hug. Hugging cautiously is being dubbed. <laughs> I mean, can you see people kind of doing a risk assessment before they sweep in for the quick peck on the cheek? I mean, it's just not going to happen, is it? But yes. um, we're, we're all hoping that the the Indian variant, which has been rising in frequency here, we've seen a number of cases where we're probably close to 1500 cases of that particular subtype of coronavirus which was first detected in India and has since spread to, to tens of countries around the world uh, including the UK whether that is going to make a big big impact on things here but at the moment it's early days yes I saw the FA Cup final it had actual fans in the stands so and this idea of a passport you know a vaccine passport and giving people access to gatherings and events if they've been vaccinated is going to be a huge incentive if only we could vaccinate people fast enough well at the moment it's very much an untried and untested entity because we don't know how this is actually going to play out you know how's it going to work um, will it work? There are a number of tests and trials going on in, in a number of countries, actually. In the Netherlands, they've they've done mass gathering type studies. They've also done this more recently um, in Manchester in the UK, where they've actually hun- had to have some events and tested people before the event, tested people at the event and tested people after the event. These are relatively small, though. And, um, you know, we've also got a time when there's low numbers of uh, cases in the country. So we don't know what the big, big effect is going to be when we've got more cases and this is happening at more venues. It's, uh, I guess, one of those things where time's going to tell. Yeah, absolutely. Important milestones. Let's go to the lines now. Quite a few calls already lined up for you, Chris. We've got Menakshi calling us from Midrand. Good afternoon, Menakshi. Hi, good afternoon, uh, Azania and Dr. Smith. Um, Hello. My question is quite... Hi. Um, I want to know, you know, we have two eyes so that we can see depth and we can perceive in three dimensions. And we have two ears so that we can hear from which direction sound is coming. But why do we have two nostrils? Okay. <laughs> ah. Well, you know, in fact, um, it sounds daft, but in fact, if you ask somebody, they will say that at different times of the day, they can breathe better through yes. one nostril than the other. And most people think it's a coincidence or a bit of allergy or a cold or something, but there is, in fact, a special cycle going on where the body opens one nostril relative to the other and then swaps them round later during the day. 
and this is achieved by controlling blood flow through erectile tissue in the nose lining and this means that you narrow one of the airways more than the other. The benefit of doing this is it changes the speed at which air goes up that nostril. Why might that help? Because some smells, the more of the molecule that you smell in, you breathe in, the stronger the smell, because it, it finds, docks with and activates the detector for that particular smell very fast. So the more of it you can get into your nose, the more you're going to smell of it more quickly. And that is called flow-limited detection. Mm. But some molecules, especially much bigger ones, take a lot longer to get where they need to go to engage with, dock with and activate their detector. And that's called diffusion-limited detection. And so by changing the speed, the relative speed at which smells go up each of the nostrils, you can make the nose more sensitive to some smells than others. So if you want to be sensitive to everything, it makes sense to have one nostril that's smelling things which are harder to detect if you put air up the nostril fast, and the other nostril detecting things which are best detected if the air goes up more slowly. But to avoid fatiguing the effect, you switch them around periodically so that the one that was smelling things that take a bit longer to detect starts to do the fast ones while it has a rest from detecting the slower ones and vice versa. So that's part and parcel of it. The other part is that you can actually do directional smelling. And this is because when smells come across the two nostrils, there'll be some smells that go up one nostril slightly before the other. So there will be a subtle timing difference in the arrival of those smells at the detectors at the top of the nose and there is the potential therefore to work out the direction from which the smell is coming from hmm. by having two nostrils ah there we go I mean, actually fascinating question there the discoveries about uh, that wonderful design that we call the nose uh, do you know of alternate n uh, nostril breathing that also is a great demonstration of how different the airwaves are different uh, airways rather at different times of the day Yes, I heard of it through yoga. Yes, yes. It's, wonder, it's a wonderful demonstration. Um, thank you so much for the call. Thank you so much. Thank you. And actually in Midrand, um, how everything speaks together, whether it's from a practice like yoga into the you know physiology, science side of things, it, it all works so well. Let's go next to John in Pretoria. Hello, John. Hello, hello. Zania is speaking to John from Pretoria. You know, last week I think you were not here, mm -hmm. the whole day we were, I think they were discussing about somebody who fell into the coma and then wake up with a different accent. Mm -hmm. And then the intriguing one is the one in South Africa whereby some of people were calling, they were saying, I think somebody in Pumalanga was speaking uh, in the rally before he fell into the coma. And then when you woke up, he was speaking in Tsonga. So I don't want to know what could have happened that the person who never spoke a different a specific language he now can speak and, and language he never spoke before. Wow. So he couldn't he couldn't speak uh, Chitsonga before that? Yeah, the, the, one of the family member called. I think, I think it was on your program. Yes. It was on your, on, your, on, on your place. And then mm. she said, no, he never spoke Zonga. <laughs> he was speaking And then when he woke up, he was speaking Zonga. He couldn't speak in Devela. They had to teach him. Wow. Chris, what happens to us when we're in a coma that you would... And of course, we've we've seen videos, we've heard of people who just wake up delirious or uh, with less filters, you know, <laughs> with the comments that they make. They're not as as filtered. Mm. Um, so what yeah. happens? Well, first of all, what happens when you're in a coma? Well, we 
don't know exactly why people go into comas, but a common thing that seems to happen to people who end up in a coma is that the particular groups of nerve fibers, which are called the reticular activating system, they are groups of nerves that originate in what's called the brain stem, which is the structure that connects the spinal cord to the top part of your brain proper. Those nerve fibers, if damaged or affected or they're subject to some kind of chemical problem, they cease to have an on-switch effect in the rest of the brain and make us switch off. And when they recover or become active again, that makes us wake up. And so one possibility with people being in a coma is that damage or injury or deactivation of those so-called reticular activating systems leads to us lapsing into a coma. And recovery from a coma coincides with or corresponds to recovery of those particular functions in those particular groups of nerve cells. If you've had damage to your brain, then it's possible that or probable that you're not going to have damage in just one area. Mm. Probably you're going to have a degree of damage all over the place. And one possibility is that the connections at the front of the brain, which affects the regions which are concerned with so-called higher executive function. This is where you bring together um, judgment, make decisions about how and what you should or shouldn't do, etc. That Those sorts of processes occur at the front part of the brain, in the prefrontal lobe. If you have injury there, it tends to, to cause uh, behavior which is called disinhibited behavior. And this is where people l tend to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. They may be particularly rude uh, inappropriately or coarse or come out with things that, that they would never normally have come out with before they had that kind of injury. So another possibility is that um, pe people do loosen their behavior and loosen their inhibitions hmm. when they have these sorts of insults to their brain. In terms of the ability to learn whole new languages and, and learn foreign accents and things, I I'm not so familiar with that actually being the reality it's possible that someone has some latent talent or latent skill in a certain direction and they had suppressed that but in fact when they were more disinhibited once they came out of their coma that then they manifested that knowledge that was already there but people won't dream up new knowledge from mm. nowhere when they're in a coma but on the other hand they could continue to learn a bit you'll hear cases of people who while they're in a coma will come round eventually and they'll then report back to the people who were with them at the time they were in the coma conversations that were going on around them. It's clear that people who are apparently uh, in a coma aren't always completely unconscious and in some cases they are just locked in and can hear what's going on around them so they could continue to learn and acquire information and that could be one reason why people are able to do some of the things we've been speculating on. So we go under for an operation uh, and anesthesia, anesthetics, what does that do? Yeah. What part of the brain does it shut down? Well, no one actually knows how general anesthetics work, to be honest with you. Oh. Uh, all we know is that they tend to be uh, small molecules which tend to dissolve quite well in fatty tissue, like brain tissue, and that if you put enough of them into the brain, they temporarily dis or disinhibit and deactivate the systems that make us conscious. Hmm. Now, one, one way that that might happen is by activating the inhibitory system in the brain, because our brain is like a seesaw with uh, some groups of nerve fibers that turn on electrical activity in the brain, other groups of nerve fibers that turn it off. So if you shift the balance in favor of turning the signals on which turn things off, 
then you will translate into less brain activity overall, and that co coincides with a, a loss of consciousness. In terms of the, the pure physical mechanism, people don't know for sure, but we believe it's because these molecules that you put in, either through an injection or breathing in a gas, take themselves through the blood supply into the membranes that surround nerve cells, and they in some way affect the way in which those membranes control the activity of groups of nerve fibers and they basically lock the nerves into an off state mm. and all the time they're occupying the membrane of those cells they leave the cells almost like cars parked with a handbrake on they can't go anywhere and then when you remove that drug and they wash out then the nerve activity resumes and the person comes back to normal right wow fascinating uh theron in pretoria hello Theron, I think your radio is on in the background. Hello, if you could please switch it off. Hello? Yes, we hear you. You can go ahead. Yes, uh, I just want to know how come all the variants, you hear about the Chinese variant, other Chinese variant, the South African variant, Indian variant, British variant, but nowhere in the original COVID name is the Chinese anywhere mentioned. So how does the, the scientific community come together and name these things because it doesn't doesn't sound very fair eh? yeah we've had we've had warnings about that Teron, that there are scientific names given it's just that it ends up being colloquially used and the media's also been asked to guard against calling these things the south african variant it just has such negative connotations we know uh, because other countries shut their borders to us when there was this thing called the south african variant so we're all actually referring to it incorrectly uh, by doing that and there's there there consequences of course um, kind of marketing or, or position positionality sort of uh, consequences to doing that. Um, what are the actual names, Chris, and how are these names uh, decided on? Well, coronaviruses actually are a big family of viruses, and there are four subfamilies in in the coronavirus family. And we estimate that there may be thousands of coronaviruses out there in nature. A handful of them affect us humans, the vast majority affect wild animals, and a very significant number of them affect bats. And that's what we think is the mechanism at play here. We, we, we don't know for sure, but we suspect that the coronavirus that's now circulating and we're calling SARS-CoV-2, the new coronavirus, was at some point in history in a bat and it jumped the species barrier, possibly into an intermediate animal, we don't know exactly what, but people have pointed the finger at a number of different species, including pangolins. And in going through that intermediate species, it picked up a few extra bits of genetic information that enabled it to so-called humanize more, which then enabled it to jump the species barrier again into us. And once in us, was then able to, to start spreading comprehensively around the world. Scientists have traced the origins of the new coronavirus to... China most probably, although we don't know for sure. And you'll remember the report from the World Health Organization in the in the last few months where they actually sent their expedition to China and they produced a list of all the possible sources. And the the the, the top of their list is that there was some kind of jump from a bat into people. We don't know exactly where. Scientists have been tracking various coronaviruses that have been found in different parts of rural China and marrying them up to the genetic sequence that then was first detected in Wuhan, which is the city where it all began, if you remember, back mm. in January of last year. And this shows, we think, quite clearly that the virus almost certainly does have its roots in China somewhere, but there are still some massive missing links. And 
the closest wild animal coronavirus that we've got is still only 96% similar to the version that's circulating in humans. Now, you might say 96% similar, that sounds like a lot, but actually 4% difference between what's in animals and what we've got in us humans now, if the virus was going to change naturally over time to, to close that gap, it would take 40 years of evolution for that mm. to happen. So that tells us there's a big part of the puzzle missing at the moment that we need to track down how, where and when did that happen? And that's what people are working on right now. But I think the, the fact that China got all the headlines in the early days means that most people are well and truly aware that the, the uh, origin is China somewhere, most probably. But the point is a good one about um, what we should be calling these things. So what, what, would, what would the recommendation be then? Wuhan, Wuhan virus, perhaps. <laughs> Oh, no, not back to the Donald Trump uh, moments and days when he used to call it the China virus. <laughs> um, let's go. The Kong, Kong flu. Yeah, you see, that's really problematic. We've got uh, Katleho in Soweto, our last caller for today. Hi, Katleho. Hi. We're good, thanks. Go ahead, Katleho. Quick one. Can you hear? Can you... Yes, we Hello? can hear you. Great. Uh, I just wanted to know from Chris, uh, what are the implications of um giving female bodybuilders um testosterone amps to curb uh, the estrogen levels testosterone amps. well um <laughs> testosterone of course is the male hormone which is made in the testis and on on average and on the whole and estrogen is the female hormone which is released from the ovary but it's not true to say that women don't have some testosterone they have about a tenth of the level of testosterone that men do. And testosterone has the effect of tending to produce bigger muscles, a bigger skeleton if you're still growing, and body stature, but also changes in body hair distribution and, as we all know, a bigger larynx and a lower voice and other changes in, in other bits of the body as well. Whereas oestrogen tends to produce breast development and uh, thin, softer skin, and some other changes like, um, you know, um, hair, for instance, tends to be lost in men with testosterone if they have male pattern baldness, but not present in, in women. Mm. But if you gave testosterone to a woman, you would therefore exaggerate male characteristics in that woman. You would encourage the development of, of more musculature. Mm. You would encourage hair redistribution changes. You would encourage voice changes and you would almost certainly suppress menstruation and affect fertility as well. Hmm. Right. I hope that answers your question. Chris, thank you so much. We'll connect again it's next a, week. It's a pleasure. All right. Take care. Have a good one. Thank you. That is Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist.